Thank you, John. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy, for this uh, wonderful opportunity. Trusted me. I'll try to do my best not to mess it up, right? Uh, the church I used to be at, uh, we had a crazy way of encouraging each other when we had a chance to preach, and the pastor said we'd lean over right before they stepped up to the pulpit and whisper, don't blow it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get this uh, slideshow. I might need a little help, brother, for you to get it, get it cooking for me. But while he's doing that, you might want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be going there in just a moment. Um, I, I do have this wonderful privilege of serving at the International Mission Board, but I want to tell you today, we've been blessed. Betty and I have already been blessed hearing Esther's testimony and uh, other things that you guys have going on in mission. So, wow, it uh, just sounds like we're just here to, if we can, pour a little gas on a fire that's already burning. That's, that's fantastic. What a joy that is. Well, I want to talk to you about the, the get-to gospel. I have a confession to make. I has spent far too much of my life in a have-to kind of mode. So uh, I remember the days when I had to go to school. You know, much of my experience was an obligation of school. I had to show up for class. I had to read books and do assignments. Maybe you felt that way at school. I had to write papers and take tests, and I just couldn't wait for school to end. And, and then I got a real working man's job in outdoor construction one summer, and it finally dawned on me what the value of a good education could really be for me. So... Uh, Anyway, I, I had to go to church as a kid. Uh, my single mom was amazing at, at uh, pushing us to church. At the time, I didn't appreciate it. I, I can't tell you how many times I, I napped my way through Sunday school, how I sat up in the balcony of the church we were at and hid behind a pillar so the pastor wouldn't see me as I dozed off during countless sermons. And, you know, other count, uh, had-tos are in my life. Maybe you can relate to some of them. You had to, had to cut the grass each week. When uh, Betty and I began to date and we planned to, for our, you know, to spend our lives together, I had to go through a lot of wedding planning, which not many guys like that anyway, but hey, it's the way it is. I had to spend Christmas with the in-laws, and that was a new experience for me as kind of an introvert at the time and uh, trying to get outside of my comfort zone. I had to uh, endure driving an old gray Chevy station wagon for a long time until we could afford a real car. I had to drive 30 minutes to work every day. I had to stay up every other night when my second son was born because uh, he never slept, and we had to take some of the stress off mom and so on. And you know it's miserable when your life is filled with a bunch of have-tos. <clears throat> I think it's turning. There it goes. Um, for some people, though, the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, they... Uh, they don't see life as a series of opportunities, but as obligations. And even though you might faithfully go to work, but you still live for the weekends. And Facebook only serves to remind you that everyone else is happier and more fulfilled with you. Well, I want to just tell you, I've met far too many have-to Christians as well. You know, for some people, following Jesus seems to be a little more like a burden than it does a, a blessing. God is someone you have to deal with. Becoming a Christian means you have to go to church. It, you have to keep certain rules. You have to give your offering. You have to maintain the appearance of being a good little Christian. And there's also this mindset in churches that I've encountered. Not, not all of them, but a number feel like that it's, it's sort of have to. We have to share our faith. We, we have to reach new people. We have to do missions in faraway places. Can't we just worship God each week and just take care of us, you know? 
Well, I want to tell you something. Life is too short to spend one more minute in a have-to kind of mode. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. God has a much higher purpose for us than to go around as just obedient uh, robots. You know, Jesus said that, you know, we, uh, no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, because everything I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. That's in John chapter 15. Isn't that amazing that he would say that to us? You know, that he wants to, to bless, he wants to work through us, and he's not looking for just automatons. He's not just looking for have-to kind of people. I come to you this morning asking each of you as individuals, do you want to get to that place in life where every day you get up with the expectation, God, how do you want to use me to bless someone today? Do you, do you want, I'm asking you as a church, do you want to be the kind of church that God uses to really, as we talked about this morning, bless the world with the truth of his gospel? Well, that's where we want to turn to the scriptures this morning. So in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, I want to start with verse 12, and I'm going to read on over into chapter 4, and I just want to warn you right now, sometimes the chapter separations in the Bible don't make a lot of sense. We can, and so I want to read through into a second chapter there because it's going to kind of all tie together. So let's look at that passage together. I'll put it on the screen with me. I am really trying to be technical savvy up here. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness, verse 12, in our speech. And we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for unto this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But, to this, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. <clears throat> I want to pray. Father, as we meditate and think on this passage, help us to recognize the joy, the anticipation, the opportunity, the eagerness that you want to bring into our lives as we follow Jesus and Lord, help us not to settle for what this world wants us to fall into, a complacent kind of existence where we just take care of ourselves, where we just follow the script that we've been given of a very consumeristic material society. But God, that we join you in an amazing, amazing opportunities that we have, that you've given us now in this day and age. 
Lord, open our eyes up to the wonder of knowing and following Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So I want to talk to you about this get-to gospel. And I want to start by telling you that the get-to gospel is an experience of mercy. Last year, I had this uh, incredible experience to travel to the Middle East and to visit in some refugee camps of Syrian families um, and work with our missionaries for a short time to see what they were doing to reach out to these families through Christian school ministry. And uh, it was humbling but also exciting to see what God was doing. These families had lost everything. They had been driven out of their country because of war. They had lost jobs, houses, uh, community hope, schools, everything, and now they're living as squatters in another country and have nothing and cannot be accepted as citizens in that country. Very little hope of being able even to immigrate without going through deadly dangers. And so believers there and, and working with our missionaries have created several Christian schools. And now we're seeing kids uh, in these situations that are now being given an education, they're now being given hope, they're being fed. All kinds of great things are going on. And so I was there with the video crew to, to see these kids and to uh, hear what God was doing. And so we interviewed these kids. We, we hid their faces at the time because we wanted to make sure they, you know, it was not made public. But we asked these kids to share what, what was going on in their lives. And so they were speaking in Arabic. I had to have uh, a missionary kind of whisper in my ears as the, the guys are videotaping these eight- and nine-year-old kids. Now, you need to understand something. Before the video took place. We were talking to kids before and said, here's why you're speaking on the camera. There's, there's young people in America that want to hear your story. So would you mind just telling them about it and, and what's going on here? And so, uh, so we explained that to him and a kid pulls out his cell phone and he shows me a video and it's pretty graphic of his father and his uncle dying in the basement of their home after a, a firefight had taken place outside their house. And this is on an eight-year-old cell phone. Now, you know, we all worry about what our kids have on their cell phones, but can you imagine having something like, that's one of your photos, that's one of your videos of family. This is what this kid has come from. And yet he sits there, and even though I'm having to have a translator to hear what's going on, he starts sharing a testimony about Jesus. He starts talking about how he has met Isa, that's the uh, Arabic word for Jesus, and how much... Uh, he has been blessed to get to know him and to read the Bible and learn the stories and learn about how God loves him and how Jesus is the king of the universe and how Jesus came to earth just like he did, become a person and who was willing to take on all the sins of the world, all the death and all the horrible things that this world has thrown at us and that we brought upon ourselves and die for us on the cross and rose again from the dead and he is my king. And this is an eight-year-old. And I'm just sitting there going, it's the mystery's whispering in my ear. I'm going, you've got to be kidding. This kid is saying this? This is amazing. And he says, you don't get it, do you, George? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, this is a, this, the, all these children are Muslims. They are grown up in an in a Islamic society, but they don't know Muhammad, but they do know Jesus. They're growing up in love with Jesus, and it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch they have encountered the mercy of God in an amazing way in their lives and they'll never be the same. I love that. You know, Paul wrote in the verse 1 of, of chapter 4, he said, Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
Now, we use the word gospel a lot in our churches, and I'm sure you guys do too, but I'm not sure everybody understands what it means. So let me offer a very simple definition. God's amazing goodness and mercy to us, even though we don't deserve it. Now, why off that definition? Because it's going to lead us to a very important understanding. The gospel is an all or nothing proposition. You can't just get a little bit of it and be happy. You're either all in or you're all out. You've either received it and it means everything to you, or you've rejected it or you don't know it and it means nothing to you. And so Paul makes very clear in his, in his words here that this ministry, this get-to lifestyle is strongly connected to the ideas as we have received mercy. So there's two things I want you to see here. One is this, your experience of mercy determines the quality of your relationship to God. I'll, and I'll show you this in just a moment. Secondly, your experience of mercy determines how much you offer it to others. Now, Jesus himself said, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And he was talking to some Pharisees and religious leaders of his time. But he could say that to us as well, couldn't he? Now, I can think of no better illustration of this than Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant. So I want to take you there. I want you to turn to Matthew 18. For, remember where we're at. And I want to read this, this parable to you from the standpoint of what does it mean to receive mercy, okay? We're going to look at verse 23. And this is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Verse 23 in chapter 18 of Matthew says, For this reason the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And this is... Millions of dollars in today's money. <clears throat> You've heard this, maybe. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had in repayment to be made. But the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's amazing. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a few hundred bucks at most. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. <laughs> it's a pretty powerful story, isn't it? There's something almost impossible going on here. Somebody, in fact, I would imagine the disciples were saying, how could this be? You know, they're scratching their heads and going, because from their perspective, they're going, a man who had been forgiven this amazing amount of money, more than you could accumulate over dozens of lifetimes. This is a fortune. From their perspective, this man had been forgiven that much. How in the world could he get all that upset over a small few hundred dollar debt. It's, it's obviously something's going on here is that he had never really received the forgiveness and the mercy of the king. Sadly, 
this is a man who never crossed over from the have to to the get to. But I need to tell you that this story represents each of us when we don't realize just how much in debt we really are before God. Are you aware of your debt with God? Have you really received God's mercy in your life? You know, in the recent movie, maybe y'all have seen this, Paul, Apostle of Christ. I think it's still in the theaters right now. One of the messages is that Paul's thorn in the flesh, if you're familiar with that, where Paul asked God to remove this thorn in his flesh, and the answer came back, no. My power is going to be perfecting your weakness. You're just going to have to live with it, because this is where I want to work in your life the most. The movie speculates that maybe that thorn in his flesh was not some sort of illness or bad eyesight, but that it was the constant reminder that before he became a Christian, he persecuted Christians, that he was a murderer of Stephen, one of the first witnesses. And that just haunted his dreams. And it's clear that in our text here, Paul has in mind his own experience of being the chief of, chief of sinners who had received the amazing forgiveness of God. You know, the get-to gospel is when you recognize just even a fraction of your debt against God and his goodness. And if you're stuck in the have-to, maybe you should ask God to pull back the curtain just a little bit of the spiritual realm and show you just a little bit of your sin. But let me warn you, if you ask him to do that, and he does, it may shatter you. If any of us were given the chance to see just what the impact of all of our poor decisions of our sinful behavior, of our selfishness, and how it has trickled out in the world and impacted others, it just might break us. We just don't realize that because in many ways the mercy of God keeps that back. Because what God wants to do is not break you. He wants to remake you. And the get-to is the chance that you can be forgiven and your life can be made new, and then you have this whole new opportunity before you to live a new life in Christ and pursue that with all you have. The get-to gospel requires an experience of God's mercy, but need move on. The get-to gospel is also a life of authenticity. I had a chance years ago to go to Venezuela and visit with some missionaries there. Unfortunately, that country is shut things down so much that it's hard for us to get anyone in. But back in uh, years ago, I was able to go to a town called Valencia, and we were uh, working on a mission trip there. And the missionary, I got, I got there a few days early, the team, and so we had a chance to sort of set things up. And he took me to a brand new Wendy's in Valencia, Venezuela. And somehow this, uh, the manager's store didn't get the memo. Because when they, we, we go up and I ordered what I would normally order when I go to Wendy's is a double burger and I, I was really hungry and the missionary ordered a taco salad and I'm just thinking, yeah, you know, Wendy's burger, no big deal, a little bit of fries and a drink and hopefully that'll get me through the day, right? But what comes looks exactly like the picture. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the pictures, the menus of the restaurants and then what comes on your plate is kind of like, oh, just not quite, yeah, well, we've gotten used to it, but somebody down there didn't understand. You don't have to do that. You, you have to make it exactly the way the picture. So I get this burger, and I'm no kidding. It's huge. It's, it's just the beef on it. It looks like it's two pounds, and it's loaded with condiments. The bun is the biggest thing ever, and the taco salad comes out, and it's just mounded with everything. And imagine the missionary just smile at me and go, they don't know. <laughs> you know, um, 
You know what the world's most valuable currency is? It's not the dollar. It's not the British pound. It's not the Japanese yen or the Chinese yuan. It's the currency of deception. The world values, the world without God, tends to value the ability to deceive, to spin things to make them look better than they really are, more than it does the ability to tell the truth. And we've gotten used to it. We even expect it. We accept the false narrative of our culture, and we pretend that whatever's advertised is worth buying, that it's in, and we don't worry about whether it measures up to what it's supposed to be. But you know what Paul says in verse 2? We've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. In another translation of New Living, it says we don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We just tell the truth before God. Just like us, Paul lived in a world where political leaders promised more than they could deliver. Sound familiar? In Roman cities like Corinth, where he's writing to, people constantly jockeyed for social status, for influence, for power. Read through the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll see some of the problems he's dealing with in that church. And a lot of it has to do with people trying to jockey for position, one up in each other. You know, the Lord's Supper, they're trying to show off how much food they brought, where the next guy doesn't hardly have any, and so forth. And you get that sense of what's going on. They look down on simplicity. Weakness and humility were despised, and only the strong and the beautiful got ahead. <clears throat> and Paul says, well, well, first of all, I'll just say, listen, let's say just some things never change. Because we too expend an enormous amount of energy trying to be more than we are. And Paul said, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I no longer live the life of pretense. I, he didn't have to wear a mask with people. He could be open and honest with himself and others. He didn't have to have, deal with shame in his life. He didn't have to impress people to get them to like him. He didn't try to spin things to make them look better than they are. He didn't have a bunch of secret sins he needed to hide and worry that somebody might discover and expose. What a relief, you know? We need to see the gospel is the most liberating message of all. It's something that gives us a chance to, to be real with each other. Because here's why. The gospel is not about you being good. It's about God being good. If there's anything good in me, in my life, said Paul, it's of God. He didn't have to be a great speaker. He didn't have to come up with gimmicks to get people to accept the gospel. In a sense, he was like a starving man who found something great to eat, and he was just looking to share it with others who were hungry. I'm telling you this because in the half-to gospel, we feel like we have to somehow present ourselves in some powerful way or some amazing way that we're not. That's not where we're going. Bay and I have enjoyed a, a movie that's come out recently called The Greatest Showman. <clears throat> I don't know what you think about it, but the main character is a circus ringmaster who leads people who are physical misfits. They're rejected by society into becoming wonderful, powerful entertainers. So you have these outsiders that are now center stage, and you have loners that come together as a family, and you have a bearded lady who steals the show with this amazing voice. Now, I'll tell you, the movie's not true to history, okay? It's just a fun musical. And I don't think it's really trying to teach us a lesson, but I do feel like it points to a, a gospel reality. And here it is. Christians have this unique opportunity to be at peace with ourselves thanks to the way God loves us. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to put on some, some sort of a false appearance of who we are. 
The curse of the have-to life is that we need to be better than we really are. <clears throat> and the, because the gospel is a, the, the, the message of mercy in our lives and being authentic and being real, you're, you re- need to recognize that you're, you're fighting your own self most of the time when you're struggling with your Christian life. You're dealing with self-deception, and it's, this pretend stuff is like slavery. You're enslaved to an image that you make of yourself. I want to tell you something. The gospel is not a get-right or get-left message. It's not a religion of moralism. It's not about you trying to get your act together and start measuring up. Instead, the gospel is a true diagnosis of who you really are and then the prescription of what it takes to heal you. Can I offer this as a simple prescription for you? For the get-to life and the get-to church, think of it as three three remedies. First of all, see yourself as God sees you. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, you're far more wicked than you could ever imagine. That doesn't sound too good, right? But then he says, you're more loved than you could possibly hope. That's great, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said, you know what? We really are... And a, important, a real ingredient in the divine happiness. God loves us. He doesn't just pity us. He delights in us like an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. And it seems impossible. It's a weight of, and a burden of glory which our thoughts, thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And you and I are people who are hungry for two, true acceptance. And you're never really going to get that in this world. But you're going to get it from God. And that's who you need it from the most. People need to belong before they can believe. And God comes to us welcoming us into his family. You see yourself as God sees you, but two, become people, become a person of authenticity. This is something we really need in our churches. We need to have the courage to get rid of our secrets and just truly be ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean you come and parade your sins before each other and just, this is who I am, accept me like I am. It's not that kind of thing. It is, listen, here's, here's me warts and all, but God's working on me to change that. And so I don't, we don't need to come together and pretend like we all have our act together and that none of us have any problems because that's not true. The church comes together because we need each other, because we're willing precisely to admit that we're sick and that God is working on our lives. And I wish, I wish it's true that the Holy Spirit would just snap his fingers and all the bad would be gone out of our lives right away, but that's not the way he works. He, he works in the mess, folks. He works in the mess, and he does it little by little, and it means rubbing shoulders with each other, sometimes rubbing off the, the rough spots in our lives, and that's what makes church really work. That's where we experience the grace of God in our life. We need to be authentic with each other. But thirdly, we need to yearn for God to do things only he can do. You know, if a church is only known by what people can do, it's not much of a church. If your life is only known for what you can accomplish all by yourself, it's not much of a life not by God's standards. So God wants to work in you, and he he wants to do things that that people recognize are God things. So what's the key to that? Well, it's pretty simple. Do you want it? Are you looking for it? Are you hungry for it? You do those things, and all of a sudden you're moving down this road of a get-to kind of gospel. But there's one more thing I want to point to you, and that is, The get-to gospel is a message of power. Look at verses 5. Well, we'll get there in a moment. Let me just say this. I grew up, and my dad was a Pentecostal evangelist, okay? When I was a young boy, 
um, he would take me sometimes on his evangelistic crusades. And uh, those, were, those crusades were the real hellfire and damnation kinds of crusades. So you can imagine being four and five and experiencing all that. Uh, Pentecostals were not above doing all kinds of things to draw a crowd. And I still have, my mom still has a picture of my dad, a black and white photo used as one of his posters for his evangelistic crusade that has what looks like a halo over his head. Okay? Now, back in the day, we didn't have Photoshop, and we didn't have all these ways you could gimmick up a photo. So this was kind of freaking me out as a kid. All right? Now, you may not go, what's a halo? You know? Well, if you go back to history and you look at some of the medieval paintings of the saints, they have this circle above their head. And back in the day, it was, it was not a supernatural manifestation. It was a way of the artist symbolizing this person is truly holy. Okay? But somehow in the Pentecostal tradition, it came to represent the power of God is on this man. So I'm looking at this picture, and my dad is kind of a fiery, you know, intimidating figure in my life at that time. And, uh, and wow, I was totally intimidated. And I'm just thinking that, you know, he, the halo was there. You better listen to this man or else. You know what I'm saying? And I think, well, silly me, you know. Uh, I think we, some of us believe we still need something like a halo before we can go out and witness to others. Look what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> he says, For the, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Notice where it, we do not preach ourselves. And where's the light coming from? From Jesus. We like to think that Paul and those first Christians were saints of the first order. And they're amazing people who really had their act together. There's no doubt about it that their lives have been changed, that they were on a new track toward righteousness. But let me say something. We're wrong to think it was their lives that won people to Christ. It was not their lives. It was their message. Now, understand, you can't present a message like Jesus, and then you're, you'd be totally out of disconnect or whack with that message, right? I mean, you're going to be hypocritical. But at the same time, I think some of us feel like we've got to have that halo before we can do anything. We've got to be perfect. We've got to have our lives just totally in control and all that. You know, Paul was not afraid to tell people his testimony, and he often did so, but it wasn't nearly as excited about it as he was talking about Jesus. And when Paul talked about Jesus, he resorted to words like glory and light shining out of darkness. And he wasn't just being figurative either. He's thinking about creation when God spoke the light into an existence and it flashbang, you know? And he's thinking about that time when he was headed to Damascus and a light shone from heaven and blinded him and made him fall from his horse and fall to the ground. And, and it was Jesus speaking to his life. <clears throat> Bay and I were at the Museum of the Bible. I think I mentioned it earlier. And there's a, a there's an exhibit in there that takes you a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament, and they warn you that it's a multimedia, multi-central kind of experience, so I'm kind of giving this away. So you go in the first room, and you sit down, and there's screens all around, and you just go, what's going to happen? And the lights go out, and then boom! <laughs> lights hits you, and sound, and wind, and all this, and it's like creation! <laughs> and you get it, you know, God spoke, and things happen, you know? And, and I feel like that's somehow the, the, what Paul is trying to talk about Jesus 
that Jesus is amazing and his power and his light and his glory can shine in our lights and it's, it will never be the same again. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be coming up on the season of Ramadan. That's May 15 through June 14. That's 30 days when Muslims uh, set aside to have a 30-day fast where they commemorate the first revelation of the Quran, their holy scriptures, to Muhammad, their prophet. And all around the world, Muslims will not touch food or drink all day long, only doing so at night. Okay? So it's a pretty big thing. They're going to crowd through the mosques. They come out of the woodworks to go do their worship on Fridays and other times. And uh, really a special thing is what they call this one night during Ramadan, they call the night of power. And we've taken notice about this, and I'll explain in a moment. But on this night is when supposedly Muhammad actually received the revelation from Allah. And so they believe, and it's written in the Quran, that if you worship and pray on this night, it's to your credit like thousands of experiences of worship and praying. So if you're in a religion where you have to earn the favor of God, which is what Islam is like, this is when you need to put your money down, right? You know, come to church on this day, and boy, it's like going to church a thousand times. How's that adding to your credit? So you can imagine everybody's all in on that day. But here's another thing about the night of power. This is when they hope and they pray for a vision, for a dream from Allah. Now, this is a, a false word coming from a, a prophet. Let's, let's face it, it's a false religion. But here's how God works. So he takes a night of power, and he goes, okay, you guys want a vision? I'll give you a vision. And you know what our missionaries and our folks are hearing? Muslims all over the world are having visions, but it's not what they expect. It's a vision of the risen Son of God coming to them. And over and over, we're hearing stories how Muslims in some of the hardest places in the world for us to reach are seeing a vision of an exalted, brilliant, glowing character that they end up realizing this is Esau. This is Jesus. And many times he's telling them to find someone in their life that will lead them to the gospel, that will explain to them the gospel. And it's happening over and over. Isn't that amazing? God's doing something special in our world to bring Muslims to himself. And it's something we couldn't have invented ourselves. He's shining a light into their lives. And so we have this message that can transform anyone and bring them to God and help them know his love and his joy. In the half, in the half to gospel, I think we get hung up presenting all the facts and a certain outline of steps to follow to be saved. But the message of the gospel is more than a set of facts. Yeah, important for us to know the details. But let me tell you, the message of the gospel is a person who can utterly transform your life. You're not talking about step one, step two, step three. You're talking about Jesus. Let me introduce you to Jesus who changed my life and who can change your life. There's no one like Jesus. But let's be clear here. The, the, what makes the message of Jesus so attractive is also what turns a lot of people away. You know what I'm talking about right now. When, you, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about this amazing eternal Son of God. But how does He come to us? He, he lays aside His glory and comes to us in the most humble circumstances. He trades His kingly robes to become a peasant in rags. His glory on earth is veiled through a crucifixion, a Roman crucifixion, death. And so you can understand why some of those folks that Paul is preaching to in Corinth are not all that fired up of listening to a suffering apostle 
who looks like a prisoner of war who's led away in chains. After all, he writes this letter probably from prison. Okay? And you can also understand how they would struggle with the idea of a suffering Messiah who invites them to take up their cross and follow him daily and deny themselves, right? And that's the struggle. But do you see how the glory of God is not just in his majesty, in his amazing might and power, but it's also in his humility. He comes in a way that we can lay eyes on him and we can know him and not be intimidated by him. Isaiah says that he's, he comes in such a way he wouldn't even blow out a, a wick that's faltering in his flame, that he's not going to blow, blow over a, a tender reed. He comes gently to us. He humbles himself before us. You know, I had a chance to visit in Ecuador, and uh, missionary said, come here, I want to show you something. And we went into a cathedral, beautiful cathedral in downtown Quito. And, and it is a beautiful cathedral, but I saw something that just really disturbed me. And it was a dead Jesus in a glass coffin. I don't know if you've ever been in one of these places, but it's, it's pretty crazy because there he is in his burial clothes with his eyes closed and his wounds still visible and he's dead. But that's not the Jesus I worship. That's not the Jesus you worship. I mean, if you want to show me something like that, I need you to show me an empty coffin where it's just burnt up. You know, something's happened, <laughs> but it's empty. You know what I mean? That's the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus who, who rose from the dead, who defeated sin and death, and he's now all the more glorious and beautiful because of the sacrifice he made for us. Here's the message. He became like us so that we could become like him. Hmm. And it's the message we want to present to others. We don't have to gimmick it up. We don't have to present it with all kinds of fanciness. We just do it with love and honesty and boldness. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's in Romans chapter 1. So do we try to persuade people? Yeah, we do. We try to convince people, yes. But our bottom line responsibility is, is to entreat people. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We're ambassadors for Christ as though God himself were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of God, of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you understand what truly compels us to share the gospel with others? It's not so much our love for people, though that's important, but it's our love for Christ. Because Paul said, we preach Jesus and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. You get that? If we send out missionaries with IMB or any other organization, and the only reason why they're going is because they just love people so much, guess what? That motivation is going to run out pretty fast. They're going to run into some hard times, and they're going to get around people they don't like. There are ministers of the gospel that will admit to you, says, you know, I love the ministry. It's just people I can't stand. I'm just saying, because if you're in it just because of people, you're going to have a hard time. But if you're in it because you love Jesus, man, you'll take on anything. Why? Because you know what he did for you. You know that you're one of those people that can be hard to love, and yet he loves you. So I, I come down to this. <clears throat> what truly compels us as followers to tell others about Jesus is not our own goodness, but the goodness of God. And it's a get-to kind of experience. But how do we get there? I, I have to get to this story. It's one of my favorite parables of Scripture. It's, the, it's called the, the parable of the hidden treasure. Have you heard it? Real simple verse in Matthew 13. Jesus was telling the story. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Very simple parable. Let me kind of flesh it out for you just a little bit here. So imagine, this is not a Civil War relic. This is not a few little gold coins somebody found out in the field. This is a treasure. The Greek word indicates something extremely valuable. And in those days, people didn't have banks. They didn't have safe deposit boxes, whatever. If they had a treasure, they wanted to keep it safe. They went out at night, buried it in a field they owned, and nobody knew it but them. But one of the problems was is you could pass on, and nobody knows where your treasure is, and it's lost. So this guy's kind of walking around, and he stumbles in a field, and there's somebody's treasure, and it's a massive amount. I mean, it's lots of money, right? And he's thinking, oh my gosh, well, he could steal it, I guess, but everybody know where'd you get that treasure from, right? You stole that treasure, you know? And plus, it's, it's not his. It belongs to whoever owns that land. But obviously, they don't know it's there because they would not be leaving the treasure there wide open for people to see. So he's got a dilemma on his hands. He's faced with a choice. What would he do? Couldn't just run off with it? It's too big. The field belongs to somebody else. So truth was, the only option he had if he really wanted this treasure was to sell everything he had and buy that field because he's not a rich man and the field probably costs quite a bit of money. Imagine when he goes home, tells his family, hey, we're selling everything. Teenage girl, give me your car keys. I'm selling your car. Give me your laptop. Give me that cell phone. I want to sell that too. Everything's got to go. The kid starts going ballistic. What are you doing, Dad? You're crazy. He goes, trust me. Trust me. Can't say anything because they don't want to give away the secret, right? He's going to, people are thinking, this man is nuts. He's going to buy this crummy field. He's going to sell everything he has. He's going to put his life at risk, his, his future at risk, his family at risk to buy some stupid field. Nobody can plant a crop in. What are you doing, man? And he's just smiling. Why? Because he knows. He knows where the treasure is. And I want you to know the get-to gospel looks a lot like that. You know, people who really don't know Jesus look at you and say, you're crazy. <laughs> Why are you doing this? But you know you're not being crazy because you've met, you've met the, and made the discovery of a lifetime. <laughs> you've found the treasure that's worth more than anything else in your life. But we can't just think about ourselves here, folks. Because... What about other people that are missing out on the treasure? They're not finding it. They're maybe not even having a chance to look for it. There are at least 4 billion people in the world right now who stand extremely, if little, if no chance to receive the gospel, to hear the gospel, to hear God's news about his love and salvation in Christ. 7,000 unreached people groups, folks, are still out there. That's nearly 4 billion people. 5,000 of those are what we call unengaged, meaning that there's no church, there's no presentation of the gospel going on in their language, there's probably no missionary work in there amongst them. That's nearly a billion people. Finding the treasure is not a guaranteed reality for everybody. Now I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't need you to finish the task of reaching the world he wants for Christ. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. He says something's going to happen. He, write, he gives us in Revelation that heaven's going to be filled with people from every, name, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. And if he says it, I believe it. It's going to happen, right? Whether you and I obey him and get on board or not, it's going to happen. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. I'm sorry, but he doesn't. But he wants you. He doesn't need you. But he wants you. And wouldn't you like to get in on what he's doing in the world? Do you want to wake up 
and realize you missed the opportunity to be obedient to God and be a part of a winning thing, the, the greatest victory in the universe. What could be more important with your life, with your family, with your kids? What, what's more important? We want to raise our kids up to, to live the American dream. What American dream? It's not much of a dream anymore, folks. You, you can't pro promise any security. You don't know what the stock market's going to do. You don't know what land value is going to do. You can't guarantee your kids are going to grow up and be happy campers. You don't know that because the American dream, as much as we might want it to be, is not something secure. And it's also not worth throwing in everything and calling it your, your, your one true ambition. What is something worth throwing in? It's what God is doing. It's the mission of God. This is why we're here. You can do something about sharing the treasure. If you so choose, you get to let the light shine out of your life. You get to be a blessing wherever you go. You get to represent King Jesus in the world. You get to be a part of the mission to rescue a lost world. How awesome is that? Are you in the have to? Are you in the get to? It's your choice. Can I just say right now as we close, I have an invitation to make to you. <clears throat> First of all, let me just talk to somebody that's here that's always thought of religion and Christianity and church going as a bunch of obligation. That's where really, if you're honest with yourself this morning, that's where you're at. Let me tell you, that's not the gospel. The gospel is an amazing, wonderful opportunity that will transform your life. And it happens when you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When you decide he's it. He's really all that he says he is. He's truly the Son of God. He came in this world recognizing we, all of us are sinners. And it took his death on the cross to redeem us from our sin. And his resurrection to the grave to promise us eternal life. And he's who you need to pin your hopes on. We say believe in Jesus. We say put your faith in Jesus. We're saying you're all in with Jesus. Have you ever done that? I want to invite you to to make that decision today. If you haven't done it, we'll talk about our pastor. Be here, I'm sure, to receive you. We'd love to share more about what that means in your life to cross over from helplessness and death to life and eternal hope. But there's also another invitation, and that is this. <clears throat> what about the way you're living your Christian life, believer? When you look at it all, are you looking at it as kind of a side issue in your life? A have-to sort of thing? We go to church, kind of maintain appearances, we, we do what we're supposed to do to stay in good stead with the Lord, but that's not really what our lives is all about in this family. Our lives is about, well, really this or this, right? And I hate to tell you something, but you're missing it. You are missing it. You're missing out on the treasure. And it is, yes, a little bit scary to sell everything and follow Jesus, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. You got story after story in the Word. You got story after story in the world of believers that says, look, I've done it. I sold everything. I went after him. And oh, it's been worth it. What are you holding out for? You're settling for so little of God when you can have all of God. And the invitation to you is, is to jump in and get a hold of the get to gospel. And I think as a church, you've done some great things to move past the have to. We have to do missions around here. We have to reach our community. Oh, it's exciting to see what this church is doing. But maybe you're not one of those folks that's plugged in. And I know there's some amazing opportunities. You don't have these flags on the wall just for show. There's opportunities here. Maybe one that we, you could plug in. Be like Esther. You, you jump in and you don't know where God's going to take you. But isn't that exciting? That's what it's all about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for leading us from 
a world full of obligation, a world full of, of rules and regulations and trying to make our own way to this amazing message where you've done all that it takes for us to be good and you just say, let me love you. Let me work through you. Trust me with your life. We want to do that. Lord, would you have your hand upon this church as well to lead it to be a light, a, a vessel that shines your light out to this community and literally all over the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.